I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, spiritual encounters that move us beyond words. Anyone familiar with what we do on this podcast expects us to engage with the vast and mysterious, as we did in our episode about the bathosphere, and also knows that we can get very excited about astonishingly intricate minutia, as was certainly the case in the episode with Mike Dilger, author of 1,000 Plants. In this episode, our avenue to wonder is strewn with material that's nitty-gritty, even gross and ghastly. We're going to talk about scat, excrement, fecal matter. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Poop. And you may think me crazy for saying from the outset that poop is inspiring, just as inspiring as rare orchids, golden sunsets, rainbows, maybe not newborn babies. If I can't convince you of this proposition... I think our guest will. His name is Joe Roman, author of Eat, Poop, Die, How Animals Make Our World. And with that title, I've just snuck in the topic of death, almost before you noticed. Poop and death can each be inspiring in their own right, but doubly so if you consider them both together, as we're about to do. We'll learn how animals, in astonishing ways both simple and complex, move nutrients around the world. And as we move along, we'll also visit an island now 60 years old, born just a year after me. If it weren't for creatures eating and pooping and dying, that volcanic island would still look as bleak and lifeless as it did in its first years of existence. So, unapologetically, here comes some potty talk. I didn't pull any punches in my very first question to Joe Roman. I just got back from a glorious weekend in the backcountry here in the Rockies, hiking, fishing with one of my sons. And yeah, we had a great time, a grand adventure. But I have to say, Joe, that backpacking has its complications. And chief among these is the whole matter of defecation, right? I'm not supposed to be like a moose or an elk or a bird and just leave stuff lying. I'm supposed to dispose of my excrement properly. And I'm just saying all of this as, as a way of introducing you. You are a fellow mammal. You're an animal, too. And you have a lot of wisdom and understanding about how animals in their natural state are always on the move and they have movements too and they're depositing them as they go. And this, as it turns out, is one of the most magical and amazing things about life on Earth from your standpoint. Am I going too far uh, that you're that inspired by poop? Uh, no, you're not, Marcus. Um, we can go back to the 1990s when I first started uh, working as a whale biologist. And to this day, one of the most memorable moments when I was at sea was having a right whale. There are only about 350 of them on the planet. Surface in front of us, take a deep breath, and then before diving, leaving this enormous fecal plume in front of me. And little did I know at the time, uh, that I'd spend the rest of my career chasing feces in all its forms, whether it's bird poop or for right whales or um, to Alaska, even looking for whale pee. And um, Marcus, I'll note one thing. I, I feel you on, on concerns about what happens to your feces when you're traveling, and um, we'll get to this. But when I was on a remote island where humans are supposed to have the absolute minimal impact, we would have to go to the very edge of the intertidal zone of the ocean at low tide and poop then so that it would all go out to sea and nothing would be left on the island. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this fact that whales or humans or whoever else might be using the ocean as a toilet, surfers and swimmers go down to the beach and they don't even think about this. I, I'm guessing it's just a place to frolic. Uh, is, it, is it offensive to you if I call the ocean a cesspool? Let me offer another metaphor. We think of it as the circulatory system. So, of course, plants or seaweed, they tend to grow in place, right? So we think of them as the lungs, and they take in carbon dioxide and release oxygen and are essential to our lives. 
One of the limits, though, is they don't move around much, right? A tree, wherever it starts to grow, most likely it's going to spend the rest of its life there. Some seeds may allow them to disperse some distance. What animals do, though, is they can take the nutrients from these trees, essential nutrients like nitrogen, iron, phosphorus, uh, that all things need to live. They'll eat that tree and they can either swim in the ocean or they can move around on land and release those nutrients in the form of pee or in the form of poop. And um, those nutrients can enhance growth on everything from new volcanic islands to the beautiful beaches of, let's say, the Caribbean or Hawaii, where we tend to think of them as being uh, having being very clear and having low nutrients, what animals like whales and fish do is when they release that pee or that poop, they actually enhance the growth of the corals in that area and of the seaweeds in that area. So rather than think of it um, as a cesspool, think of it as they're doing a really important service in fertilizing those oceans. But your story is so much bigger than pee and poop. You are trying to paint a picture that is so holistic that it has to do with the movement of nutrients in all forms, not just what is excreted, but if I'm going to die and have a green burial, for instance, then my body is, is also moving nutrients depending on where I get deposited, right? That's absolutely true. There are two ways you can think of us. If you think of animals and humans being one form of animal as a way of moving nutrients around, right? Let's think about it almost like we're cells in the circulatory system. There are two ways that we can move those nutrients. One is daily through pee and poop, right? So we're just constantly, we're eating and we're excreting and we're releasing those and we might be doing it in our backyard or in a toilet and the animals will be going to what we call latrines or they might be going to areas where they nest every day. So they're moving those nutrients. But there is a final pulse or a full stop, of course, that all animals, all plants die. And when animals die, they can leave enormous impulses of nutrients. Uh, let's think of the largest animals ever to existed on the planet, the great whales, right? Think of a blue whale or a fin whale. So they can live more than 100 years, and, and like we said, they're peeing and pooping every day, but when they die, if they die in the deep sea, think about that enormous pulse of resources that's going to what's basically a desert. So you have these whales die, and that's about the same amount of nutrients that might fall in that area over a 1,000 years, the same amount of carbon in a single death, right? Hundreds of species that are only found on whale falls have been found on these dead whales. They're feeding on the whales. First they feed on the soft tissue, then they feed on the bones. Entire unique communities, some that don't even feed, that are just using bacteria in order to live on these bones. Joe Roman is terribly fond of whales, and we'll explore the watery world of these animals from angles you've likely never considered. But whales are so big, it should hardly be surprising that they are major players circulating through this wondrous story of eat, poop, die, the story of nutrients globally on the move. But consider this question, how big can the role of tiny creatures be? Taking a quick detour here from Wales to a little place in the north of Iceland where farmers are concerned about midges, flies so small that here in the United States, they're sometimes called noceums. Given their size, it's boggling to think that midges would even matter. These midges are um, about the size of, let's say, a uh, an exclamation point or maybe even a comma. So they're tiny, right? And of course, an individual midge isn't going to have an impact on a lake or on a grassland. But these animals, uh, they breed in the lakes, right? So they have a larval form in the lakes. And then when it's time to mate, they emerge from this lake, which is called Mivaden, which means midge lake. So this has been going on for a long time and people acknowledge it. They rise up in early summer by the trillions. And they move out over the land. The males will form these amazing mating columns. They look like pillars or almost like smoke or fog over the entire ecosystem surrounding that lake. 
And within 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards, they're so thick and they're really only living for a day or two. Once they breed and then once they die, it is this midge fall really that changes everything in these, in these ecosystems, in these grasslands. They're taking the abundant nutrients from the bottom of the lake, which they've gotten from algae. They will release nitrogen and other nutrients almost the way that people fertilize a garden or when you fertilize a farm. The farmers around there, they're mostly sheep farmers, they call the type of grass when the midges rise migras or midge grass because it's greener. The areas where the midges are, rather than the dry heathlands that have very low nutrients, they're thick, knee-deep grasses. So these midges really have a huge impact, not only on the lake ecosystems, but also when they emerge. And this changes everything. Not only does it change the grasslands, but the spiders start feeding differently and the birds start feeding differently and the fish that depend on them. And then you also realize that the sheep that the people depend on were feeding on these grasses. And some farmers would say that the best years were when the midges were there. Those are the years when they had the best harvest of sheep for that year. When you tell a story like that, I'm just thinking about the power of tiny, tiny stuff in the aggregate. In my local area, I couldn't count, for example, the exoskeletons that have been shed at molting time for various insects or, or you know, lizards that are sloughing their skin. Does all of that stuff count in this transfer and this movement of nutrients? It all counts. But there are hot spots and hot moments, right? So there are some areas, and we just talked about Midge Lake, there are areas, for example, in Africa, where there are, of course, still lots of large mammals. So those are the hot spots where animals having a big impact. But there are hot moments when, for example, the Canada geese are going to start moving through or lots of other migratory birds are starting to move through. And that's when things get really exciting, right? I think of it in one way. Most of us talk about the weather when we run into people, right? You know, you say, oh, how's the weather? It's hot, it's cold, rainy, whatever. I think back when animals were more abundant, the people spoke about the animal weather as well. They spoke about animals. Think about when bison migrated through an area or passenger pigeons or these midges. There's still a type of midge weather or cicada weather, right? For me, what's most exciting is thinking about what it was like in the past, where we can find those now, and how we can encourage the movement of animals once again in the future. Encouraging the movement of animals, that's going to be a, a very important thing down the road, isn't it? I believe so, especially, you know, that we're facing so many global changes like climate change or a decline in nitrogen in some areas, excess in nitrogen in others, same for other nutrients. Let's think of a nutrient like phosphorus. In many lakes and many river systems, they have too much phosphorus released either through farms or um, through lawns. One way that we can get those nutrients back up and onto land is through migratory fish and through predators and herbivores. Think about bison or deer. They're all moving those nutrients around again. How can we restore what I would call a critterscape, right? So how can we think about the world where really we get to walk out and part of your day is uh, seeing these animals once again. That's what gets me really excited. And that would not only increase people's, I think, sense of awe or wonder to see something like a trillion midges rise from the lake. And by the way, I'm a realist. I know that many biologists and many animals are thrilled with this, but not every tourist loves to have a lot of midges around. So, you know, let's be honest that, you know, not everyone loves this abundance. But we would really be awestruck, right, by seeing these animals again. And the great thing about animals is once you restore them, they'll do the work for you. Rather than having to go out and fertilize those grasses, the animals do it for you, and you don't have to keep repopulating them because the good thing about animals, like plants, they reproduce themselves. So if you create the right conditions, they'll keep the nutrients moving for us. Those nutrients were on the move long before we humans got here, of course. So animals aren't just doing their thing with us in mind. But it's fascinating to think that every single living animal has a hand in this process, or a paw, or claw, a hoof, a fin, a tail. 
Joe Roman is telling us that this transport of life-supporting materials from this spot to that spot every single day in a myriad of ways in every ecosystem is humongous. And it happens simply because animals cannot stop eating, digesting, excreting, and ultimately dying. Let's shed a little more light on things with the story of one such ecosystem. It's located around the Mara River in the Masai Mara National Reserve in Kenya. Joe Roman has closely followed the work of Amanda Sobolewski and Chris Dutton in this region. It's a place where hippos, wildebeest, and other megafauna range free. We'll start with the hippos. It's eye-opening when you realize that they are doing the same kind of work that those midges in Iceland do, or wherever midges are. But they're doing it in reverse because they're actually moving the nutrients from land to water. Amanda Sabalewski and Chris Dutton. They were examining the water quality in the Mara River, and the national parks had much more nitrogen and phosphorus in them than the areas where there were farms and people. And I was just mentioning, often we think of these nutrients as being a form of pollution. That's an indication that there's too much farming. So they scratched their heads. They're like, huh, why could that be? And then they went down to the water and they saw a hippo pool. So numerous hippos that were sitting resting in that water. So um, how are they moving nutrients? So hippos feed on what are called hippo lawns. So they feed on the savannas in the evening and then they go down to the river system during the day or in the mornings or something like that. They're sitting in those river systems, relaxing, cooling off and pooping. And, you know, hippos are very large animals. They release an enormous amount of poop into those systems, so much so that those hippo pools look black, right, rather than that clear waters in those areas. So they're creating these ecosystems filled with hippo poop. They measured how much, and they found that a large amount of nitrogen and phosphorus is getting into that system via these hippos, and it's changing those hippo pools. They're finding the stomachs of a lot of the fish in those areas filled with hippo poop. Um, there's a lot of bacteria. Plants are growing around that area. And also, amazingly, because the hippos stay in one place, the bacteria from the hippo guts were actually, when they excreted, were going into these pools and sort of forming this external gut. It was almost like the hippo pool was an extension of the hippos themselves. So they're bringing those nutrients, they're recycling into that system, and they're even creating this sort of external ecosystem, this external gut in that area. So that's an interesting process right there, one where you have living animals that are moving those nutrients. Hippos aren't the only animals that frequent the Mara River in Kenya. Wildebeest, skittish, migratory, fast-moving, they show up at the river in a mood very different from that of the hippos. The wildebeest are in a much more agitated frame of mind, not lounging. They're looking for food and they're moving back and forth across those savannas. There are some risky times, though. They have to cross the Mara River and other river systems, and when the water's deep, they're not great swimmers, but there's sort of a herd mentality comes over them, and one of them will cross, and then a lot of them will cross, and guess what knows about this? Crocodiles know about these crossings, so it's a dangerous time. Crocodiles will sometimes take some of them, others will drown across the way, and as we had mentioned with dead whales, there'll be this enormous pulse of carcasses, wildebeest carcasses, um, that are released throughout this system. Amanda Sobolewski, who studies these river systems, estimates that the average inventory of bones in the Mara River is equivalent to the mass of about 50 blue whales. So that's how much of these bones and carcasses are getting into that area every year. And again, the, the fish are feeding on it, the vultures are feeding on it, the crocodiles, there are hyenas. So animals are coming in from across the savanna to feast on them, and they're all releasing those nutrients into the system. So over the year, you have, one, this constant form of nutrients being moved by this 
hippopotamus conveyor belt. And then you also have these mass mortality events that are bringing nutrients into that system. Amanda started thinking about that and she said, well, we don't have those large migrations in the United States now, but historically we would have when bison migrated. So we probably had something similar when bison were moving across North America. When they crossed, there were reports that thousands of animals could have died as they cross that area. So it's not unique to Africa, or at least Africa may be one of the few places where we can observe it now. But once upon a time, this was probably happening on continents around the world. I mentioned to Joe Roman my childhood introduction to what we always called the food chain, and my suspicion that the concept of a chain, especially given what he's describing here from the research in Kenya of Sabalevsky and Dutton, well, at the very least, it's oversimplified if you're thinking about creatures always arranged in a line from large to small. You know, a big predator, like a cougar, eats a grouse, which has eaten an insect, which has eaten a leaf, and further on down the line. But think back on this situation at the Mara River in Kenya. A fish might be eating hippo waste, or bacteria are setting their plates on wildebeest bones. Nothing seems so linear anymore. Joe Roman responded to me talking about the animals he loves so much, those whales. Part of my inspiration for studying whales was that I had heard for years that one of the threats of whales returning to the oceans is that they eat our fish. Therefore, we need to cull whales, because if they're eating our fish, then they're competitors. And early on, I had noted, well, what about all the feces that they're releasing? It's actually more like a feedback, a positive feedback loop. So whales, yes, they eat fish, they come to the surface, they rest, they digest, they release nutrients, and that enhances the growth of algae and seaweeds in that area. So that idea of a food chain, um, I'm hoping let's move beyond that and think of it more as a loop or um, as a food web, right? So that Animals, plants, and bacteria, they're all impacting each other in fascinating ways. And, you know, the cool thing is, Marcus, this field is really a decade or a couple of decades old. We really, you know, we're at the very beginning of understanding. Uh, My book talks maybe about 10 systems. We'll soon find that all animals and, you know, and all plants are engaged in this way. Um, So that old idea of a food chain, we can at least elaborate on and think maybe of it more as a loop. That's very helpful, actually. I'm going to be thinking now in terms of loops. But you've also talked and written about a concept you call a pump, a biological pump. And we ought to talk about that. I think think the word pump conveys a whole lot more energy than just saying the word loop. Absolutely. The idea of the biological pump is, so you have an ocean system, and let's say it's a couple of thousand feet deep. Um, And of course, photosynthesis requires light. So the only productivity in these systems are coming at the very, the surface of the ocean where there's enough light for growth, right? So you can think about algae or seaweed absorbing nutrients, they're taking in carbon dioxide, but they're only alive really at that pretty close to the surface. Zooplankton, the animals that eat them, the small animals that eat them, uh, come to the surface at night and feed on phytoplankton, right? They feed on this algae. And then in order to avoid predators during the day, they will dive deep into the dark during the day. And this is called daily vertical migration. And It is, in fact, we've been talking about migration today, the biggest, the largest migratory process on the planet by far. Trillions of animals every day right now as we're speaking across the world are going up and down, up to the surface to feed, and then diving deep to hide from predators. Why does that matter in this biological pump? So what happens, as we've been discussing already, when animals move, right? Well, they defecate and they also can die. So they're feeding at the surface of the ocean and they're moving those nutrients in a process called a biological pump down into the deep sea. And of course, phytoplankton can also die and move some of those nutrients down, though a lot of it stays at the surface. So the idea of this biological pump, why does this matter to us? Um, For one reason, because when these animals die, they're taking carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus into the deep sea. 
That matters a lot in climate change because it's one way of carbon sequestration is if they die into the deep sea. Um, but it also means that nutrients like nitrogen can disappear. Well, well, from view, right? Not actually gone forever. It's not disappearing. It's just dropping into the bottom of the ocean where it is unavailable to other plants. It could be sequestered in the deep sea for centuries even thousands of years. Is your concept of the whale pump something that somehow uh, reverses that or, or mitigates it in some way? Exactly. So I remember learning about the biological pump when I was a graduate student in the 1990s at the University of Florida. I was sitting at the back of the room, you know, mind wandering a bit. And, and that was the first time I'd heard about this biological pump. And I realized I had been watching whales for years before that do something entirely different, right? So right whales, for example, when they come to the surface, they have mud on their bonnets or on their head. So they're diving hundreds of feet to the bottom of the ocean where they're feeding. And of course, why do we focus on whales? Well, one, they're large, but two, they're air-breathing animals, right? So they, unlike fish, they have to come to the surface. Every 10, every 20 minutes, some of them can last 30 minutes. But, you know, whale has to come to the surface. They come to rest, digest, to breathe, and also, as it turns out, to poop and to pee. You know, it took me a little while to frame this as a whale pump. So we have this biological pump, right, where these small animals are dying or defecating. And then we have these large animals that are doing the opposite, right? They're diving deep to feed, coming to the surface, resting and releasing those nutrients. So whales aren't just predators, but they're actually fertilizing their own gardens in these areas. I came up with this idea. I had no idea what the numbers meant. As one of my colleagues said, uh, Joe, yeah, sure. You know, I can believe that there are some nutrients in, in whale feces, but, you know, is it ecologically important or is it a fart in a hurricane, right? <laughs> That set sort of the course of my career is to show the ecological importance of the movement of these nutrients. And what we found in these fecal plumes, which by the way, can be like the size of a boat, just like for other animals, uh, the poop resembles what they're eating, right? For right whales that are feeding on copepods, they float at the surface, they're bright red. For humpback whales, when they're feeding on fish, you can barely see the fecal plume. It's green, it looks sort of like the background waters. I think of it as oversteeped green tea, right? So it really depends on what they're eating and how they're releasing those nutrients. But no matter what they're feeding on, in every one of those fecal plumes, we found elevated levels of nitrogen and phosphorus and iron, which are the limiting factors, just like any of Listeners who have gardens, you know, you might have to add some nitrogen every year, or some phosphorus in some places, iron. These whales and other large species, and whales aren't the only ones are doing is the ones we focus on, but it's true for seals and seabirds, which are also air breathers. Um, they're releasing these limiting nutrients into the system. And why does that matter? Well, in the summer, just like in a garden, after there's been a lot of growth, the algae or the seaweed decline in growth because they don't have any more nutrients. And this is one source of those nutrients is from these large animals. When they're moving through this system, they're taking the nutrients from the depth and releasing them at the surface. Whales do this. Storm systems can also do it. So we think of whales as one really important form of biological transport, or the whale pump, for nitrogen and other limiting nutrients. The way Joe Roman tells it, the lights went on for him as he was sitting at the back of a classroom. If nutrients sink down at sea, whales can bring some of those nutrients back up, and this whale pump makes for a cycle. He wouldn't have had that classroom aha moment, though, if he hadn't spent a whole lot of his life out at sea observing whales. Because this is constant wonder, part of what I do with people like Joe Roman, well, I fish around in their memories. I want to have them relive transformative experiences of awe. What was it like seeing his first right whale ever? An animal that can be as long as a city bus. Seeing it surface within range where he could see it with his own eyes, but not just see. Given our focus in this episode, we now have to ask what it smelled like. 
He'll take us back to that first encounter in just a moment. And a little later on, we're also going to get to the story of that island born within my own lifetime. That island fits, too, into his understanding of how animals regenerate life on Earth. Joe Roman is author of Eat, Poop, Die, How Animals Make Our World. I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. At the risk of infecting you with a little bit of FOMO, I'll just say, maybe even brag here, that I've personally seen not just a captive killer whale at SeaWorld, but a free gray whale out in the ocean, the wide open sea. Sixth grade, 1973, the California coast, call me Ishmael. But what I really want to know is what was it like for Joe Roman to see his first whale back in the 1990s? He was volunteering with the Right Whale Research Project, and there he was on a ship in the Bay of Fundy off the coast of Maine. He was about to cross paths with a right whale. We had left probably four in the morning, and for most of the morning we didn't see any whales. It can be a long commute out to the bay, and I still remember when the first, one of the first whales I ever saw was this large old male that emerged pretty close to the boat. It had mud on its head and on its bonnet because it had been feeding at the bottom. And it's resting at the surface and it's breathing. And then I'll never forget, just before it's about to dive to feed again, it raises its flukes. And these flukes are like the size of a Volkswagen in front of us. And then we see this enormous slick, this enormous black and red slick behind that whale. It was the size of our boat, probably extended about 10 to 20 feet. And it, there are some of the, it's like floating at the surface. There are some brick-like forms of these feces. We described it as flocculent feces at the time. Um, it's breaking up. And then uh, the whale dives. Friends of mine collected this. They were looking at genetics at that time, as well as at what the whales were feeding. You get close to it and it stinks. This is one of the strongest smells I've ever had on the planet, honestly. If you get this whale feces on your, on your clothes, you can wash it as much as you want, but you pretty much have to throw them away. It's briny, it smells, the whale breath isn't much better. It kind of smells like the whale breath. So we collected it in, in large vials and took that back and started analyzing it for genetics and for diet. So I thought at that time, maybe there's something more than the, the information that my colleagues were trying to get and that maybe these whales were having a bigger impact on the, on the ecosystems, on the ocean than we had imagined at that point. This should go without saying, but a, a naturalist can't do nature unless that naturalist is a keen observer. The greater the attentiveness, the more likely one of those eureka moments is to come. Of course, the really big revelations are rare, and they come at a cost of both this kind of attentiveness and extraordinary patience. When you're studying rare species, you spend a lot of time staring at the water, not seeing animals, right? We're kind of used to that, so you can kind of phase out. Nonetheless, that's really an, often, you know, if you're receptive at that moment, when you see something, it really can be spectacular. I tell my students, whenever you get a chance to go out in the water, that would be true for your listeners too if you get a chance to go out into the desert or wherever. Take it, give yourself some time and observe. I do this work for two reasons. One is because of the excitement and the awe that I can have in the natural world, but also because I hope I can change in my own small way, help restore wild animals across the planet, including whales. Our guest has been giving us the straight, the proverbial straight poop about fecal plumes from whales. Joe Roman has a drive and energy for this kind of research, and it leads him to places where he just has to hold his nose. That's a price he's willing to pay. Here's another significant area of behavior among right whales that captivates him. They have one of the most spectacular breeding groups on the planet. Often there's one female, and she can attract a couple to a dozen to 
tens of uh, male right whales that are trying to copulate with her. And so she's lying, she's at the surface trying to avoid the males and the entire ocean seems to be active, right? The females on her back, the males are trying to get closer. And well, the truth is that's probably one of the most successful places for us to find whale poop. For whatever reason, there's often a lot of whale poop in the water as well. Um, so it's those moments really of seeing animals in their abundance that really sparks my imagination and hope for the future. We often think animal populations always go down, right, in your lifetime. It's something called a shifting baseline, that animal populations are fewer and smaller than when we were younger. The good news is that can go in the other direction. I grew up in New York City. I never saw whales. I didn't see marine mammals. I was interested in the ocean, so it wasn't for lack of looking. The waters were polluted. Whaling was still continuing. There were no endangered species of marine mammal protections. And now, when I go back to New York, I can get out of the water and see humpback whales, fin whales, their dolphins are returning, seals are returning, the waters are cleaner, it's better for swimming. There are many more fish because we've reduced fishing in those areas. So that's the great news is when I tell this story, I want to emphasize we can really make animals part of the world again. One way I think about it is, can we replace our carbon footprint with the tracks of wild animals, right? At this point, we've got a fairly good grasp on Joe Roman's main theme about animals depositing nutrients hither, thither, and yon, reviving depleted places as they go. For all of this, you gotta wonder how the system's gears first started turning. And this is where the island of Surtsey comes in. What if we had a case study that allowed us to watch, in real time, the birth and expansion of an animal-driven ecosystem? a pristine patch of earth where the very first plants take root, insects begin to colonize, birds show up. What if we could see there the very first organic instances of defecation and death? That patch of earth, dear listener, is Surtsey, and Joe has been there and loves it. I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. On November 14, 1963, a ship's cook spied a rising black plume near Iceland. Now, we've heard a bit about plumes already, but this one was volcanic. I was just about a toddler that year, and a few years later, I was old enough to page through a stash of old National Geographic magazines that my mother had kept. I was mesmerized by photos of this new island. It took about four years for Surtsey to expand to an area of one square mile at its largest. Decades of erosion since then have worn it down to almost half that size. Two partially eroded craters remain, each about 500 feet tall. The place is desolate looking, except for one grassy corner of the island, which is green. There are tight restrictions on any human incursion there on the island, and Joe Roman is one of the lucky ones to have been allowed a visit. Joe Roman is author of Eat, Poop, Die. The Icelandic government, soon after it erupted, restricted access. So really only 12 people a year get to go to the island, and I joined the biological researchers there in, in 2021. And what makes Cersei so fascinating is uh, many things, right? It's beautiful in that it's this stark lava island way up in the north near the Arctic Circle, isolated with very little life uh, on much of the island. But if you were to right now look at Cersei from space, you'd see something curious in this black landscape, and there's this bright green spot on the southwest part of the island. And how did that get there? Well, it's emerged in the 1980s through the movement of bird poop. So we've been talking about whales, we've been talking about large animals and small animals, but one of the most important species on the planet to move nutrients are seabirds. They move large distances, they feed in the oceans, they breed on land, so they're bringing nutrients into these volcanic landscapes as well as onto sandy landscapes in the tropics. So when I went there, I have to say I felt so lucky 
my first step on the island that I felt like I was stepping onto the moon. And it almost looks like a lunar landscape for much of it. And so much of it is these sharp, craggy lava. You have to be very careful where you step because you can easily sprain an ankle. Then you get to the bird breeding area and all of a sudden there are knee-deep grasses in that area. It's soft, it's spongy, and it's loud. Because we often think of natural areas as quiet, but not when you have hundreds or thousands of breeding birds in a particular area. So they're going back and forth, feeding their young, and releasing on average about three ounces of bird poop onto this volcanic island. And the change was night and day, especially once the large gulls came into this area. And now it is as if, you know, it was a lawn that had been, or um, a field that had been fertilized by people. They're bringing in 60 pounds of nitrogen into this area every year. And first, there were only a few plant species on the island that could survive, because the only way you were going to make it on that island was packing in your own nutrients. But once the birds came in and started releasing all this nitrogen and all this phosphorus from the oceans, species took off. They're not only are they bringing nutrients, but since birds fly around, they were also bringing seeds that were stuck on their feathers. And now not only are there birds that, that have come in to feed on the seeds, but there are also even birds feeding on the insects that are feeding on the plants. So an entire ecosystem formed. This is exciting in a lot of ways, but especially um, one thing for a scientist, and I study complex systems like oceans, is that Circe, we know exactly when it emerged, and they've been following it every day, uh, you know, every year. So they know every species when it arrives, how things changed. And what's also lovely, it's a very simple system. You know, when we're talking about the whale pump that we mentioned earlier on, there are a lot of species that are, are, are interacting here. Here, maybe there are a few dozen with a very clear track record, and it shows something that is clear as day, really, that animals can have a big impact by bringing nutrients, by carrying seeds. They can change entire ecosystems. And it certainly has happened on volcanic systems around the world. And it's just nice to get to a system that's simple, very well controlled, and starkly beautiful. So part of the miracle of a place like Surtsey in my book is that it didn't exist and then suddenly it came into existence. And we know about the geology enough to know how a volcano might do that from under the ocean. But it comes into existence above the water, and there are no native species on it because nothing's really alive there. Isn't that kind of weird to think of a place that kind of defies all of the rules? I mean, nothing there is really a native species. I, I, maybe, maybe the second generation is native because it, it gets born there. But it's so new that that's just a shock. It is, absolutely, because some of the great work on volcanoes has actually been done in Mount St. Helens. So that's continental system, right, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, after it exploded, also scientists were out there pretty much from day one. But there was a huge difference, because as you say, there were species that survived, right? So it wasn't a blank slate. There, there was a lot of lava and there were areas, but, but for the most part, animals were colonizing or plants were recolonizing from areas that they had managed to survive in that system. And um, Charlie Chrysofuli, who I spoke with, he describes Surtsey as an ecologist's dream world. And by the way, I tell that story as if, oh, yeah, seabirds are going to come and change that. No one knew that was going to happen, by the way. You know, in the 1970s, as the first bird showed up and it was a fulmar and a guillemot in that area, at that point, it looked stark. There were a few species of plants on that edge. And it wasn't a gradual change, really. You had a few birds come in and maybe there were a little bit of shifts. And then in the 1980s, the seagulls come in, these black-backed gulls and herring gulls, and within a couple of years, everything changes. You have this riot of life. And there is no way we could have predicted that. I don't know a single person on Surtey that doesn't feel very lucky and very thankful to be there, all right? That doesn't recognize the immense privilege and the gift that Surtsey has really provided us. And one of the great things about being there is, you know, there are researchers there that are older than Surtsey. I'm trying now to picture just how austere Surtsey is, hostile to humans, uh, very windy, I'm imagining, all that jagged rock. And of course, you're just shy of the Arctic Circle, so you've got a very dark winter season. 
When I was on Circe, it never got dark. <laughs> that was disorienting enough and that it was really an endless day. Um, so there is a little bit, I would say, of terror in that. And Icelanders know this. Uh, it's a very safe country. There's almost no crime there. But, you know, nature, if that's your day, it's over. And I've had colleagues tell me that when they visited Circe that not only did they find it beautiful, but they also found it kind of scary. And I think that reflects what we think of as the sublime, right? A sense of beauty, but there's also some sense of terror. And, and we find that in the word awe as well. When you're out there walking alone, it's with a bit of mixed feelings. I'm kind of glad that I know that my colleagues aren't that far away when I walk down to the edge of a cliff and start hearing that lava falling beneath me. It also comforts me that it's the birds and the other animals that are bringing those nutrients and are probably going to help preserve that island as well. So, Joe, we've got this show, and the name of it's well known to our listeners, Constant Wonder. I mean, you've been describing processes and systems and relationships and interactions and synergies and all of that kind of stuff. That's kind of hard to, to follow because it's not like looking at a single animal or a single plant. I know ecosystem scientists, they get very excited about that. They can see the wonder. It's clear that you see the wonder in an ecosystem that has diversity and biomass and things big and things small. I'm wondering if you could encapsulate for us what really hits you in the heart when you're thinking about something as abstract as an ecosystem. I've been working on whales for more than 20 years, right? I had never been on a breeding ground for humpback whales until last winter. I went to Hawaii and the day wasn't really very good. We didn't really see any whales, but we went out on a boat anyway. And my colleagues put a hydrophone in the water. So basically a microphone that they dropped into the water. And Mark, as it blew me away, I, I swear I thought it was a recording. It was like being dropped in this beautiful concert hall. We could hear numerous male humpback whales make these beautiful sounds. And you're sitting there, you're looking around and you don't see anything. The animals at that point are singing to each other on their mating grounds. And that's the magic. We didn't even know this happened like 50 years ago, you know, until people started using hydrophones to listen to these animals. So for me, it is partly looking at these ecosystems, but just as much thinking about that individual mom with a calf on that breeding ground and hearing those sounds. You know, I hope it's both. At the end of the day, people, I know people that try and put dollar values on animals. Oh, there's some tourist value or there's a carbon value. I feel like a lot of that is ephemeral. What really matters are the experiences that people take away, whether they see wolves in Yellowstone or they see cicadas or they see, gosh, you know, seabirds, even gulls get a bad name. Think about the beauty there and how they're moving nutrients around as well when you see that gull fly overhead. So there's a comparison I, I want to invite you to make here, because earlier you were talking about the terror, the sublime aspect of standing on Surtsey, and then you talked about beauty in the humpback whale song, the concert hall level beauty. Most of us, we do see wonder in life. It's much more difficult to see wonder in death because of that terror, that sublime. But in your book, you, you mention a phrase that Tom Waits has been keen on quoting. It goes like this, life itself is really just the dead on vacation. Does that get you down? One would think so. I have to say, so, so I wrote about that while I was in Bristol Bay, which is in Alaska, and it is an extraordinary place because there are millions of sockeye salmon that spawn in that area and migrate to these streams every year. And this to me is like traveling in time. In this case, there are jumping up, uh, you know, over dams. They're bright red when they're migrating up. And it's almost like seeing brake lights on a freeway or something. It's bright red and going into these very shallow streams where they're going to spawn. The females are going to release eggs and the males are going to release sperm. Now, it might feel sad that they're going to spawn and they're going to die in the next couple of days. And bears might come in and feed on them. But 
at the end of this, it just seemed in some ways a lot of these areas looked looked like some form of paradise. There would be what called bear kitchens along the edges, so some places where the bears were feeding, and you might see what would be a bear bedroom, and, and I described that as probably a million-dollar property on Bear Zillow, right? They were going to feed in this area. They're going to have this view of the stream, and, and that's going to get them through the winters. Good for the bears, but sad for the salmon? Really, they're living their life in, in many ways forever. They're going to feed bald eagles. They're going to get into the, the river system. Some of them are going to get into the trees. So in that way, when you're seeing this, for me, what it makes me think of is what could a place like New England look like if we restored these river systems? And, and again, we're not just thinking about the systems. We're thinking about the individual fish. Here it might be alewives. It might be Atlantic salmon that could come back into this system. And when they do, it changes everything, including our perceptions. I'll give you one example. We thought we kind of knew what humpbacks did, right? Because when we started studying them, there weren't that many humpbacks on the planet, and they kind of all did the same thing. They did their migration patterns, and they might be influenced a little bit by something, a predator like a killer whale. But then when populations got really large, they started changing their behavior. They started feeding in these enormous aggregations. So we would start seeing them feeding together and you'd see them almost across the horizon, the way that early colonists described uh, North America at that time. We also saw killer whales coming and starting to feed on on the young calves, which sounds brutal uh, to humans that you would see these large predators come in. The humpback moms didn't really know what to do with that at first, but then they started protecting the calves and male humpbacks would started attacking the killer whales. And not only that, they even started attacking the killer whales when they were going after seals and sea lions. And we think of this as a form of altruism, maybe in animals. So we're seeing them not only protecting what could be their own offspring of their own kind, but protecting other species as well. That just happened in, in a decade. We started seeing these shifts. And again, that's what makes me excited is the idea that, sure, I saw this one rare event off the coast of Alaska. What could happen if we could restore that in other places in the Pacific Northwest or to other migratory pathways around the world? We will be surprised and amazed uh, as we see these changes, I'm sure. Our guest in this episode has been Joe Roman. He's author of Eat, Poop, Die, How Animals Make Our World. And if you enjoyed listening today, be sure to watch your feed for a little bit more from Joe Roman right here on Constant Wonder, because this episode actually concludes our season six. Then we take a three-week break before season seven gets underway. And in the break, we're going to bring you some bonus material It's about a separate project Joe Roman is engaged in, and it underscores his passion for life on this earth. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor with production assistance from Brian Barba and Colson Darrington. Sound design was by James Call and Carly Wilson. Season 7, I want to add, launches December 1st with a constant wonder celebration of Advent. We'll be dropping a short episode every day in December, right until Christmas. It might be a story from nature, from art, from the Bible. Because remember, in the story, the Magi were not Jewish. They were coming from the East, from different traditions. And yet they're being drawn together in this moment of worship. It kind of gives you that hope that maybe there would be this ability for us to cross all the things that divide us and worship and wonder together. Each episode during Advent is round about 10 minutes in length. It's a simple, suitable compliment to the Christmas spirit that's so welcome during the holidays. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.